For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received a commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now down to verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we are grateful to be in your presence this morning, considering that the blood of Christ has freed us to enter into the most holy place, unhindered, by faith, with confidence in his work. We trust that we can stand here in your presence. And we ask this morning that you'd help us to be aware of that by faith and to behold wondrous things from your word. The most wondrous thing we need to see is Jesus. So help us in his name. Amen. So when we consider Abraham, we're considering no insignificant character. If you think about it, just in the world today, the three major monotheistic faiths, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all in one way or another count Abraham as their progenitor in the faith. There have been billions of people who've lived in the world, billions alive today, who would make that claim. They'd say, Abraham is ours. God himself is pleased to, to refer to himself as the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the corpus of scriptural revelation about Abraham is vast. It's worthy of study. If you want to do an in-depth study, and you're taking notes, write down Genesis 12 to 18, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and Hebrews. This is no insignificant character. But for our consideration today, we really want to focus on what the author of Hebrews is highlighting, namely Abraham as an exemplar of faith. So if you would, um, turn to Genesis 12. We're going to peek just briefly at the call of Abraham. And while you're turning there, I'd like to remind you of a passage from Acts 7 where Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian faith, is giving this sermon. He makes reference to this. And he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to Canaan. So I point that out because Stephen is making a distinction here between the call of Abraham in Ur and the call of Abraham we see in Genesis 12 when he's in Haran.
So let's read just briefly the beginning of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. This call uh, is sometimes referred to as a renewed call because Abraham first receives his call in Ur of the Chaldeans. It was... uh, In Mesopotamia, it was a very rich place, very fertile and rich, and it was situated on the Euphrates River just north of the Red Sea. So it was a major trading route as people would go up and down that river. And somehow we get the picture that Abraham and his father, Terah, had become wealthy in Ur of the Chaldeans. So God is calling Abraham out of his familiar land. So we ask the question of the text. When we look at Hebrews, back in Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called. Ask the basic question, what is Abraham obeying? He's obeying this call of God that's renewed in, in Genesis 12 that we just read. And it's no small call. If you think about it, God is calling this man to leave his security, his wealth, the familiarity of his extended family, a common language, a common culture. And God is saying, pack up and go somewhere that you've never been. And it just happens to be 1,500 miles away. So when you moved in those days, you didn't hire a moving truck. You walked with your livestock and your family. And if you were to walk that 1,500 miles from Coeur d'Alene and you headed south, you'd hit the Mexican border. It's quite a walk. You might have to have a few pair of sneakers to get that done. It's not a small thing that God is calling Abram to. And they had to travel up the Euphrates River. If you picture the east, and you have, trying to do a mirror image here, if you have the Red Sea over here, and you have the Mediterranean Sea over here, the Euphrates River goes up to Haran, and then he went back down this way. Why didn't he just go straight across? It's a vast desert. And you can't walk with livestock across a vast desert or you and your family and your livestock will perish. So they go with Lot's father, Terah, who still is the eldest male and the patriarch of the family at the time. And they go up to Haran and they stay there and live there until Terah dies. And God renews his call to Abraham and says, continue your journey to the land I've called you to go to. It's a long process and it probably would be intimidating to anyone if they didn't have faith. Which leads us to the next question of the text in Hebrews 11.8. How is it that Abraham obeyed? It's very simple. In the text it says, by faith Abraham obeyed. His faith is what motivates his obedience. His heart has been made new. He has new desires and a new nature that says, essentially to God, he says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His heart, because of his faith, is in sync with the Lord's heart like a tuning fork. 
His heart beats like the Lord's. And the nature of this faith makes God's call irresistible to him. It's like a homing beacon. He's eager to obey God's command, not reluctant. He's eager. So he obeys by faith, a faith that has changed him. And you could ask a basic question again of this text in verse 8. Where did this faith come from? Now we know uh, from Joshua 24 that Abraham's father Terah was not a believer in God. In fact, it says that he was a worshiper of other gods. So Abram didn't have the advantage of being raised in a believing home. So how is it that God introduces himself to Abraham and Abraham comes to know God while he's still in Ur of the Chaldees, a rich boy, a privileged man? Well, we really don't know. It's a mystery. God is the one who introduces himself to Abraham when he's in Ur of the Chaldees. And we know that faith is not a new covenant reality that just emerges late in time. Faith is what the divines would call an ancient grace. God has been implanting faith in the hearts of believers since the beginning. And God introduces himself to Abraham in a way that is mysterious and gracious. But we do know that by the time he receives this call, Abraham's been given this faith by God, and he's ready and eager to obey. Let's look at this next phrase in verse 8. He obeys when he's called. They said he's called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. I'd like us to notice two things in this phraseology. He's called to go out from something before he's called to go to something. And that's reminiscent of every person of faith. You're called to go out from your worldly ways. You're called to leave and abandon your self-reliance, whether you're wealthy or not. And we know how hard it is for wealthy people to abandon their self-reliance. Jesus himself said, it's harder for a man to enter the kingdom than for the camel to go through the eye of the needle, right? And so the disciples say, well, how, how then can these rich men get saved? But Jesus says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So Abraham would have been tempted to be self-reliant, probably had a very nice dwelling, wanted to settle there with his wife and have kids, doesn't have kids at this time. But God is calling him to go out, and if you're going to have a family, raise it somewhere strange. You're going to travel all up the Euphrates, you're going to travel all the way back down the Mediterranean to a culture you don't know. He says, leave your self-reliance. Leave your trust in your wealth. Leave your worldly ways, if you will, behind. And leave your extended family. Leave all that comforts you and gives you a sense of security. And go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So faith here is, Abraham's faith is trusting God. It's not that the place was promised to be richer, God is not saying to Abraham, leave this rich place that you have now, and I'll give you a richer, better place. I'll give you bigger barns. He doesn't say that. He just says, go to a, a, a place that I'm calling you to go, that you'll receive as an inheritance. So he leaves, he leaves Ur, he comes out from Ur, and he takes a long way, but he goes to Canaan. And faith is trusting not really that he's going to receive a better inheritance in this life, but he's trusting God as the gift giver. 
not so much the gift. He's not saying, what am I going to get if I go here, Lord? What's in it for me? It's not the nature of his faith. He's quick to obey just when God gives the general command. Look at this next phrase in uh, verse 8 again, verse C. He went out not knowing where he was going. He really didn't have a clue. He may have heard the name Canaan, but I'm sure he'd never been there. He doesn't know where he's going. His faith is not dependent on sight or experience or a Rand McNally roadmap or anything else. He's simply trusting in God. And I've heard the phrase, you may have heard it, faith sees the future. In a sense, that's true. But I think it's more accurate to say that faith sees the one who holds the future. Abraham trusts and knows God well enough to know that he's omniscient, he's eternal, he knows the future as well as the past. Faith trusts in him who promises, and it trusts that those promises are a certainty. He just trusts. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Abraham did not know where he was going. Which really leads me to a little bit of a theological ponderance. Does faith really require foreknowledge? Obviously not. Human beings are not endowed with foreknowledge. We're designed to be dependent on the God who alone possesses foreknowledge. If you know God to be who he really is, you say, he holds my future in his hand. He knows what's around the next bend. He knows what's coming every new day. We don't know what a day will bring forth. God knows our entire future. And so, because we're designed to depend on God, we can happily depend that His foreknowledge is as good as ours. He has our good in mind. He has plans for us. We can trust Him. We can depend on those incommunicable attributes of God that He alone possesses, not just foreknowledge. Every incommunicable attribute that God possesses, He gives us through faith in Him. We trust Him with those things, right? Abraham goes out not knowing where he's going. So we too need to trust God for our futures. I suppose if you asked yourself this question, if I knew in advance every trial that was going to befall me in my life, if I somehow had a notebook and I could open it up and see my future and I dared to read it, would I shrink back in fear if I saw the trials that God might have written for me? It's a good thing that we don't know our future. We're not capable of handling that. It reminds us that we are dependent on the God who holds our future. And that's a safe place to be. Jesus says each day has enough worries of its own. We trust God to protect us and guide us each day, one day at a time. I wouldn't really want to know my advanced future. I wouldn't want to know the, death of my, uh, the date of my death. It would totally change my behavior. It would change my experience. I'm not supposed to know. I'm supposed to trust. Let's look to verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise. This faith that God gives Abraham 
It has feet. It moves. It's not static. It's not theoretical. It's not that I've sat down and cogitated, well, God is in charge of all things, and so therefore it's okay. It's more than just an intellectual ascent. It's, it's not just a, a static concept. It's a dynamic working of God in the souls of those who believe. It causes us to move in obedience. Faith as this package of gifts from God is really coupled with hope, our hope and trust in God. If you've ever had that theological question, is where does faith originate? Does it come from me? Is it an innate capacity of human beings to determine what they're going to believe in? And do I just exercise the freedom of my will and choose what I'm going to have faith in? Or is faith rather something that God initiates? It's a really important theological ponderance. And one we can find the answer to in God's Word. Right? We know from God's Word that there are different kinds of faith. There's temporary faith that erupts like a flash in the pan and fades when the trials of life come. And then there is the persevering faith that God produces in the soul of His people. Just by reading Ephesians 2.8.9, those famous verses, you can see that by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So the that not of yourselves refers to the nearest preceding antecedent, faith. Faith is not of yourselves. Faith itself is a gift from God. I can remember a time in my young Christian life when I was pondering these types of questions, and I didn't know who to turn to because I'd hear one thing from one professor and another thing from another professor, and one pastor would say this and another pastor would say that, and I said, I really need to know what the truth is about this. And so I was driven by that need, not just curiosity, a need to know, into the Scriptures. And I just had a very simplistic caveman approach to saying, I'm going to just flip through every page of the New Testament and write down any reference that has anything to teach me about faith and repentance and whether this is a gift from God or whether it originates from man and how can I know for sure the foundations of my personal faith are being shaken and this is too important an issue to just leave to some party-line thinking. I needed to know from God. And I can tell you that exercise of flipping through the New Testament is four times in four months, just writing things down and writing things down, absolutely revolutionized my life. I would commend the caveman version of study to yourself. If there's something about God or salvation, something about eternity, something significant that you need to know, find it in the Word and own it. Own it for yourself. Don't just take someone else's word for it. God will teach you. Prayerfully ask God to illumine you to the truth of Scripture and find the truth as a sure anchor anchor for your soul. If you do that study and you study what is the origination point of true faith and true repentance, is repentance a gift? Scripture says, after Peter recounts his his encounter with the Gentiles, and he reports back to the other apostles, they conclude, so then God has granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to faith. He's granted them repentance also. Who are we to stand in the way? God granted them repentance. God caused Lydia to believe. Look into these things for yourself and gain the assurance that comes from owning it from the Scripture. So this faith of Abraham's that we're looking at 
It's not just a firm persuasion. It's a certain expectation. This gift from God that gives the soul present possession of a future reality. Matthew Henry says it like this. He said, The long arm of faith can lay hold of promises that seem far off and pull them into the heart. That's a great way of describing that future realities can be your present possession by the faith that God gives. Faith reaches out with both hands and grabs onto the truth. It seizes onto the truth, that great treasure that says, I belong to Christ. Christ belongs to me. And it hangs on for dear life, no matter what may come. That's true faith. It guides us like a compass to the land of promise to come. Back to Abraham's example, verse 9b. Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Let me put a question mark at the end of that. Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land? The land of promise is a foreign land? Hmm. His faith is distinguishing here between temporal blessings and eternal blessings. Abraham somehow knows by the way God has revealed himself to him that this journey he's on is not the end unto itself. It's not the promised land. It's a step on the way to the promised land. It's the temporal place of residence, not the eternal place of residence. Abraham knows that. We'll see that in, in, in the context as we go on. But Abraham's faith taught him the difference between what we might call the now and the not yet. Blessings are yours in Christ now, but the fulfillment of them is in the not yet. So many things in Scripture could, you know, that could apply to so many things in Scripture. It's, it's a very significant truth to think about distinguishing between the now and the not yet. Christ has come. We have been saved from our sin, and yet He will come again, and we will be fully and finally and completely saved from our sin. The distinction between temporal and eternal blessings and the now and the not yet in the Scripture. Abraham's faith taught him that. Now, verse 9c says he goes out to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Here we see, in a sense, I think you can extrapolate that Abraham has to count the cost here because he knows that God has promised him a progeny. And he knows that wherever he goes, that's where he's going to raise his family. And all those roots he dug back in Ur and building that big house and, you know, making extra rooms for his, his kids to come, that's all gone. And he's going to now raise his family in tents. This is where he's going to raise his kids. Not in that beautiful home he had. You're going to raise your kids in tents. Hmm. Let's look at Genesis 15 for a second. In Genesis 15, 
We'll read verses 1 through 7 and then 12 through 16. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. He reminds Abraham who it is that's making this promise. Skip down to verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and we will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God reveals more of his plan to Abraham, then known as Abram. And he says to him, This offspring that I promise you is so vast, they're going to be suffering in slavery and servitude for 400 years. What kind of promise is that? How many people would say, I'm in? All my kids. You know, it's harder to watch your kids suffer than watch yourself suffer. And God is telling them, your offspring is going to suffer for 400 years before I bring them out into this land and give another layer of temporary fulfillment to this now not yet promise. The promise comes in waves, sort of concentric circles going out, intensifying as they go until the final end when God reveals the fullness of the promise. But in the meantime, this sojourn that Abraham's called to go on with his progeny is going to be a difficult one. It's utterly scary. He's going to live in tents as, an, as a foreigner with his kids, Isaac and Jacob, who are known in, in uh, Hebrews 11.9 as heirs with him of the same promise. So Abraham sees the bigger picture. His faith enables him to see the bigger picture. If this is God's plan and he has designed for my progeny to suffer like this into slavery, something greater will come at the end. God doesn't waste trials. He doesn't waste people's personal history. There's a purpose behind it all, and for his greater glory. And Abraham trusts that. He sees the bigger picture. And he knows this promise, all these promises that God renews with him and and reminds him of, they're not just about him. He knows it's not about him. Abram's faith makes him a bigger picture guy. Look at verse 10. For he's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Again, faith 
is distinguishing between temporal blessings and eternal blessings. Abraham sees beyond the temporal part of the promise into the eternal part of the promise. He's not just trusting God with his earthly life and saying, Lord, get me through, help me muddle through somehow and struggle through until I can finally be at peace and rest in peace. Just help me get through this difficult life. He doesn't have that attitude. He has a hope in him that this faith is producing. Faith is always coupled with hope. And he looks forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. He trusts God with his life. He trusts God with his soul and his eternity. He trusts God with all of his progeny. There can be innumerable progeny. Number the, the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore, if you can. Number the stars in heaven, if you can. He'll be the father of many nations. In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. These are gigantic promises. And Abraham trusts God for it all. Because the city that has foundations has a designer. It has a builder that he knew. He knew God as his creator and the creator of all things, both temporal and eternal. If you remember uh, from Romans chapter 1, let me just read two verses from Romans 1. It's a very famous passage, but it's, I think it's applicable here. Abraham's looking forward to a city that has foundations. It's not of the earth. It's of something greater, and he extrapolates from his knowledge about God to what God is going to do. And so should we. Look at Romans 1, 19 to 20. It says, What can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Abraham saw creation before and after God gave him faith. Now, how is it God here in... in in Abraham's life, and in Romans 1, in, in, in just general revelation, is revealing himself in the created world. And also in the creation of a rational human mind. Let's not forget that. Not only is the world showing forth the power and the majesty and the artistry and the genius of God, the beauty of his mind, but just by designing our own mind in a way that we can perceive that and look at it with rational thinking and say, Every cause must have an effect. Every effect must have a cause, rather. If this world that I'm looking at is is an effect, what could the cause be? What must the cause be? The rational mind that he gives the natural man is enough to make them culpable. The obvious law of cause and effect is really inescapable, and it should inexorably lead to the conclusion of a creator... Because the identification of God's fingerprints on all creation are so obvious and so ubiquitous that he holds even the natural mind accountable to him. And yet we know the unregenerate mind remains incapacitated to believe through its own willful blindness. There's a self-incapacitation in that, in that the blindness is a willful blindness. They refuse to see. They refuse to believe. It's not just unbelief, it's disbelief. It's willful disbelief. So what overcomes that in the natural mind? What, overcome, what overcame that in your life if you're a believer? Remember Hebrews 11.3. It's by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. 
This isn't some chemical happenstance, some coincidence of geological time. By faith we know that the world was created from the Word of God, not by the mind. Our minds were darkened. Faith illumines the mind. It it teaches us that what is seen is made out of things that are invisible. It has to be. Nothing can come from nothing. So everything comes from something. And what is that something? We're forced to conclude that God is the prime mover in all things. The natural man looks out at the world and maybe he gets up on a mountaintop after a climb and he sees the vastness of creation and he says, wow, look at the scale of geologic time in this canyon. Look at what time has done. Should he bow down and worship Father Time? It's kind of ridiculous. What do the eyes of faith see when you look around and you see creation? Does it make you wonder what kind of God can make a world so beautiful? And yeah, granted, we live in a corrupted world, but the fingerprints of God are still all over it. How can you not cry out and say, God, teach me who you are when I see the beautiful things in your creation? Even when I see the beautiful things like childbirth, all the beautiful things in life should teach us to to say, what is this teaching me about you, Lord? That's what the eyes of faith teach us to look for. It's faith that illumines our understanding. It always concurs with reality. It calibrates our thinking. It realigns our hearts. It focuses our loyalty. It draws us not only to see the truth, but also to love the truth, to have an appetite for the truth, and more than that, to love the truth giver. Who gave us this beauty? Who gave us these wonderful things that we see? So Abraham is called the father of faith. He knew these things. He knew the city that had foundations that he hoped for, that not yet part of the promise was designed by God, the architect of all good things. And God positions Abraham because of his faith to be an exemplar for our faith. But he's more than just an exemplar for our faith. The Lord said that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Such a vast promise. How can that possibly be fulfilled in the little lifespan of Abraham? It has to be fulfilled in one of Abraham's offspring. A descendant of Abraham would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus, the one who descended from Abraham, ultimately both inherits the promises made to Abraham and ultimately fulfills the promises made to Abraham. It's Jesus, the true seed of Abraham. The one those promises were directed toward. The one that Abraham looked toward. The prophets of old searching these things, trying to know what they were speaking of. Abraham must have wondered, how is God going to bring all of these promises to pass? And how he rejoiced in Jesus' day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus says. So Abraham, as the father of faith, is one of those in that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about that serves as an encouragement to all of us who have faith. And yet he is more than that. 
The storyline of Abraham's human life ultimately typifies the storyline of the life of Christ who is to come. Now, not in every way. Abraham was not a perfect man. The Bible doesn't paint its characters as perfect men, with the exception of one. But in many ways, Abraham's life typifies the life of Christ. And we see uh, typology really all through the Old Testament particularly. Uh, sometimes people get confused with the terminologies for typology. They think, oh, here these theologians talk about antitype and type, and what does that mean, and which is which, because the prefix anti throws people off sometimes. They think it means against. When you hear the word antichrist, you think against Christ. But it really means before, in front of. The antichrist steps in front and eclipses. He wants to take the glory from Christ, and he's anti because he steps in front. He's be, he tries to be before Christ, so that everyone misses Christ, right? So that prefix antitype, don't let that hang you up. Sometimes maybe it's easier to think of typology in the Old Testament as a prototype, the first model in a mold that shows what's to come. But this typology is all throughout in symbols, you know, in in, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and other things like that that are sort of tangible, inanimate things, but also in the, the practice of the sacrificial system. As you guys have been going through Hebrews, you've been studying these things. But also, let's think about typology in terms of storyline. Sometimes we like to think of characters in the Old Testament. Joseph was a type of Jesus. Yeah, very much so. Daniel was a type of Jesus. Yes. But some of the lesser characters we might see in this Hebrews Hall of Faith, we think, well, how could Jephthah be a uh, type of Jesus? You know, it, it's, it's really sometimes more part of the person's storyline that is highlighting the greatest storyline to come and not the total person. The storylines of these characters are sort of a pre-telling of the greatest story to come. So over and over, the author of Hebrews has been teaching us to go back to the Old Testament and interpret it in light of its Christ-centered typology. You guys have had the privilege of sitting under Pastor Joss's teaching longer than I have, but this book is, is so pronounced in its directing us toward Old Testament typology that it's very, very hard to miss. You probably heard this statement. It's kind of a clever evangelical cliche that says, what was in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. Well, that sounds clever, and it preaches well, and it's nice, and it's largely true. And certainly we have received the fullness of revelation in the New Testament, since in these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, and the fullness of revelation has come to us. The mystery is being revealed. But was Christ really so concealed in the Old Testament? The author of Hebrews would suggest otherwise. He's revealing like no one else how clearly the Old Testament prototypes and examples foreshadowed Christ. He teaches us an inspired hermeneutic, if you will, how to study the Old Testament with an informed retrospective, not to import our beliefs back in there, eisegetically, if you will, but, but really just to refamiliarize ourselves with these stories so that we can see Christ freshly and see those aspects of Christ's person and work that we maybe have missed out on. You know, reading the Scriptures is not a one and done. I had a pastor who was about to retire who told me, how amazed he was that he continues to discover new truths about the Lord in the Scriptures all the time. It's a never-ending well of depth of knowledge of God. 
It's not a one and done. Go back to the Old Testament and take the advice of the author of Hebrews and, and take a fresh retrospective on it. So back to Abraham, as he leaves the comfort and security of his riches in his homeland, we're looking for Abraham, the storyline of Abraham as it typifies Christ's greater storyline. He leaves the security and comfort of his homeland. He learns to dwell in a strange and a foreign land as an alien. He's an exile. He's completely out of his element. He's out of his comfort zone. And he learns obedience to God through what you might call the adventure of the life of faith. You know, it is, a, it is an adventure to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in God in the life of faith. You don't know what is coming, but you know that God will bring you there and He'll bring you through the trial. It's not an escapism thing where God will protect me and nothing bad will ever happen to me. But when you do encounter trials, God will bring you through it. And it's an adventure to trust God for that. He's brought you through things in the past. Trust Him still to bring you through things in the future. So as Abraham typifies Christ, likewise, on an infinitely greater scale, Jesus leaves the comfort and security of His riches and His homeland in heaven. He possesses a shared glory with the Father in heaven. And in obedience to the Father, He leaves all the privileges of that glory, and He empties Himself. He condescends to break into human history in the most humbling form imaginable. The eternal Son of God becomes flesh and dwells among us taking upon himself all the frailties of our mortal frame, yet without sin. And he executes the most radical relocation in history, an unimaginable disparity between heaven and the abode we find ourselves in right now. If you put a gap between heaven and hell, and heaven's up here, we're living just above the gates of hell, okay? We're not halfway in the middle. Jesus condescends from the glory of heaven. He comes down to save the lost souls of men. He comes down on a rescue mission of cosmic proportions. Came to save all those who have faith in him. So we ask a question, if Abraham typifies Christ like this, his willingness to go out in faith and obey God and leave his, the comfort of his homeland, and we see Christ in that, and we see Christ coming down in that ultimate condescension, how should we follow the example of Christ? How are we to complete our sojourn on the earth? We too are called to live as strangers and aliens on the earth as well. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. It's not just the place we're to be separate from. It's the putrefaction of the place that we're to be separate from. We're in the world, but not of the world, right? And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So we, too, are to live as sojourners, extracting ourselves out from the worldliness that we were born into. We were born as enmity, at enmity with God. And he rescues us from the domain of the darkness of the world and transfers us into the kingdom of light. And how? Remember in Hebrews 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But I'd like to flip that and say, conversely, with faith, it is possible to please God. With faith in Christ. So we live by faith, not by sight. 
Sight can't apprehend the incomprehensible God. He alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. You cannot know God with your eyeballs. Faith is ultimately far, far better than sight. It draws us heavenward like that homing beacon. It draws us to know God in Christ. And we live by faith, not by sight. We considered earlier, if we knew in advance all the trials that God might have in store for our lives as we sojourn in this world, we might shrink back in fear. We might be overwhelmed by the temptation to fear. Remember, in Jesus' case, during his sojourn on the earth, he did know in advance the trials that awaited him. He knew every trial, every temptation, every grief, every sorrow that he was to face. He even knew the horrifyingly brutal way his life would end, the injustice of it all. And even worse, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that he would have to endure the terrifying wrath of God, the just wrath of God on our behalf. He knew all of that in advance. Yet we see Isaiah prefiguring the voice of Christ in Isaiah 6 when God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And here Isaiah speaks as if the voice of Christ, he says, Here am I, send me. Again through Isaiah in chapter 50, the Lord says, I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus sets his face like flint toward the cross, knowing what's coming in advance. Nothing could dissuade him from his mission to glorify God by saving his people talk about trusting in God. Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So we see in the faith of Abraham, the fruits of Abraham's obedience, leading him to believe in that city to come, leading him to realize that the promise would be fulfilled in his descendants. The fruits of Abraham's obedience actually look to the fruits of Christ's obedience. That's how the city is built. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham We see in Isaiah again, the righteous one will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. When God said, in you all the families of earth will be blessed, that promise extends through Abraham's descendants to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He will see his offspring. He shall see the travail of his soul, 
the anguish of his soul, and he will be satisfied. Abraham may have been called the father of many nations, but ultimately Jesus in heaven will hear them sing a new song to him saying, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them will say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus will see the fruits of his saving work. He will bring many sons to glory. And he will be satisfied. This is the Christ Peter speaks of when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we owe you our gratitude. And that is the biggest understatement we could even make. We owe you our lives, our souls. And our faith is so directed toward you because you give us the hope of all the eternal promises being fulfilled. You give us the hope of heaven, union with you now and union with you forever. Thank you for settling uh, our debt for willfully and knowingly going to the horrors of the cross where you faced the righteous wrath of our holy God. Thank you so much for being our substitute, for taking our place, for living the righteous life that we should have lived, that we owe God. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you in Jesus' name.